0: Amen. Amen, church. Well, good morning. And um, wasn't that good just to worship? Um, Man, there's so much noise every week, but then there's like good noise, you know, and worship is good noise. And um, yeah, I just think it's good. It's good to gather together. So, no matter what your week has been like, um, it's good to be in the house of God. It's good to be with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and um, we're just grateful to be here this morning. And I uh, love taking communion together um, because it is significant. It is the uh, it, it is it is the gospel that we get to remind ourselves of what Jesus Christ did for us, uh, and it's so valuable for us as a people and. Um, So we're grateful to get to do that and just to remember what the Lord has done for us. Um, Well, before I jump into the message this morning, kind of want to share two things. Uh, One is um, we as a church have been, uh, are now actively searching for, uh, I'll call it a solution for how do we better minister to families. And I say that because I right now am the de facto families pastor and uh, what that means is that I do some of that, but don't do it to the fullness that it needs to be done. So uh, if you're in the family zone, or if you're a family, you're like, yeah, I don't know if I've talked to Tyler in a while, or I'm not sure he responded to this. It's not because I don't love you or don't care. Uh, it's that time and space are reality, and we want to do a better job at taking care of our families. If you're a college student Hey, you're being taken care of pretty good by Kevin and Hope and their team, right? If you're a young adult, you're like, hey, Christian Allison, they know our name, they're in our corner, right? Hey, quick side note, who went to the the marriage conference, young adult marriage deal? Hey, awesome. So all your marriages are great. You're ready to write a book about it and tell us how to do it. Awesome. Uh, If you're a youth and you've got Clayton Fraley is serving and loving on you, and I love that, if you are a child, you're probably not in this room unless you're just saying "goo goo gaga." Ga. Um, but you could be in this room. But you are blessed and served by Jordan Fraley. She's doing an amazing job in children's ministry. And if you're in the family zone, you get me. So, um, so I say that to say this: we are actively on the search for saying, God, what are you saying about how do we move forward and take a giant step and ministering to our families, existing families, and reaching out to new families? So that may look like hiring a full-time families pastor. Um, It may look like hiring a couple different people to bring on board, to help administer, coordinate things we're doing with the church, not just in life groups, but beyond that, when we start talking about men's ministry and women's ministry and families and how that's all involved, because... The church as a whole is the family of God, but families, there's so many dynamics and challenges happening. My wife, my, my wife uh, not my wife, my life is way more complicated. <laughs> about to get in trouble there. My life is complicated. I'm not gonna talk about the difference between men and women right now, that's not this sermon. I think we all know men are a little simpler, but we'll leave it at that. My life is way more complicated as a father and married and with kids and a household than it was a college student. It, it just, if you're in college, hey man, it's as simple as it gets. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, hey man, just buckle up, it's about to get worse, okay? So if you feel overwhelmed, here's what I wish I would've done in college, is reached out to somebody 20 years older than me to put me in my place and say, hey dude, it's not that bad. And it's settling me down, it's like, oh. Okay, right. So I felt overwhelmed in college. I shouldn't have, looking back. But at the time, it's like, oh yeah, because that's my world. It just gets way more complicated and difficult. Therefore, as a church, we're recognizing, hey, we've got to do a better job to take care of our families. So here's what I'm saying to you, church. You ready? If you know somebody, your mom, your dad, your uncle, your grandpa, some of this church, you're like, hey, I think they would be great at pastoring families, living on them. Then you come talk to me and Billy and let us know. I'm serious. We don't usually do it like this, but we're saying, hey, we want to find some great people to help partner with us and minister to families. So if you're like, ooh, I got a good idea, come talk to Billy first, probably, not me. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Um, secondly, kind of shifting gears and just tone real quick, obviously, I think most of us are aware of what's going on in Ukraine right now, and I want to take a moment to intercede for them. Um, And and what I want us to do as a church is, is, it's less about getting into why it's all happening or I don't really know. Um, I just know that the Bible talks about that there are wars and rumors of wars. And that's not just in the end times. That's like been around forever. Since the Garden of Eden, there's been wars and rumors of wars. And so one day Jesus will end it all. He will come back and it'll be over. But that day hasn't come. So until that day, there sadly are tragic things happening around our world. We still have to go on with our lives, but it doesn't mean we can't remember and pause and intercede for what's happening in the nations, okay? So we're going to take a moment right now just to pray. Should just bow your heads with me? Jesus, we ask right now. You would intervene in supernatural ways. In Jesus' name, you'd provide healing to people in Russia and Ukraine, Lord, on both sides, Lord, that as people are being wounded and shot at, Lord, and bombed, Lord, we pray there would be healing in Jesus' name, Lord, we pray there would be radical salvations happening across the lands, Lord, we pray there would be a revival in Russia happening right now, that the Spirit of God, you would sweep in and you would bring about conviction to people, and as they weigh out their lives, they would say there must be more, Lord, we pray that the gospel go forth Forward. Lord, we pray there would be a revival just like there was when the wall fell back in the late 80s and early 90s, that the gospel go forward and people across Russia would start turning to Jesus. We pray for the same Ukraine God. We pray that the Ukrainian church would be strong. We pray for those that are following you, that are making disciples, they would not lose heart, that they would stay courageous, and they would press in to love the next person in front of them, to serve their fellow countrymen. Lord, we pray that you would find families for the orphans, for the children, all dispersed across the land. We pray you would find refuge for those that are immigrants, that are fleeing, that are refugees. Lord, we're asking you for you to intervene. We're asking for there to be millions of stories of how you are showing up, how you are being powerful and awesome, how you are putting on display your love and your forgiveness and your healing power, we pray, across the land. And Lord, we pray for discernment and wisdom for world leaders that are trying to make massive decisions with money and weapons and people and personnel and responses Holy Spirit, let this be an hour where the church does not cower, but presses in. Let this be an hour where people rise up in their faith and they are stirred to believe God, not just to cling to their life, but they would press into more. Let people ask the bigger questions in our country about what is it, what is my life here for? What is my purpose? Who is my maker? Who is my creator? Lord, I pray there'll be revival in this country as we watch the news, that people be stirred to turn towards you, not turn towards fear but to turn towards faith. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Church, we're always going to be a people that are otherworldly. We can't just do what the world does. The world is ruled by the demonic. We're ruled by Jesus. We've got to follow him. So whatever it is, we're experiencing in our lives whatever news stories feeds we're getting whatever things we you've got to respond if your whole family's negative you got to respond with a christ-like faith if everyone's down you got to be the one that picked them up you know what i'm saying like we've got to be the church that responds in the small things in our lives which matter and the larger things that's my hope for us all right We're continuing our series on the radiance of his glory, which really goes back to us releasing our vision statement as a church, and part of that vision statement includes we want to be a radiant church. And so we're taking eight weeks to kind of unpack how did Jesus show us the example and the way of radiating God's glory by the way that we speak, by the way that we say things, by the way that we act, by the way that we think, our faith, our mind, all that goes into it. Jesus... Showed us what the Father's like. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt. In Jesus Christ, he showed us grace and truth. This is Jesus. And so we said, you know what? We need Jesus to be the one to show us how do we continue to grow and increase in being a church that radiates the glory of God? That people, when they walk in here, when they walk in a life group, when they interact with you at the restaurant or at the workplace or whatever you're doing or at a wedding or with your family, they're like, man, there's something on you. right? Like There's something radiating off of your body, off of your words, that is encouraging me, that is stirring me, that is comforting me. There's something about you that's different. What we want is for people to say, hey, that person... Oh, I know them. They've been with Jesus. Like, that's the mark of a true disciple. That's what we want to be like. People that when they see us, interact with us, they're like, hey, you remind me of that Jesus guy. Does that make any sense? Not famous actor guy. But, hey, you remind me of Jesus. That's what we want. And that we all look different. We all talk different. We all interact differently. But the common thread is, man... We're oozing Jesus. We were going to put oozing in the vision statement, but it just sounded weird. So we decided to go with radiate, all right? Thank you, Lord. All right, so that's what we're doing. Today, we're going to look at a passage here in Luke 18. I'm not going to go long, hopefully, so that's my goal to you guys. But we're going to look at a passage in Luke 18 a few minutes, starting in verse 9, as you turn your Bibles to there. Um, this, this passage is about the Pharisee and the tax collector, okay? It's Jesus kind of sharing this example, this parable, kind of signifying two different worlds of pride and humility, of self-righteousness, and, and, and kind of depicting these two worlds. But before we do it, I want to read you two quotes from two probably famous people you've heard of, Jonathan Edwards, a famous preacher in the Northeast. Of America during um, great revivals and the Great Awakening. He said this in 1737. He preached a message, and in it he said, Pride is the main handle by which he has hold of Christian persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and tender a work of God. Talking about the devil. Spiritual pride is the main spring, or at least the main support, of all other. Errors, Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. Let me read that again. Until this disease, talking about disease of pride, is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. Let that sink in. Pride, the root of evil. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity's book, According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Now, C.S. Lewis ain't Jesus, but the man was pretty sharp and tuned in with the Spirit of God. And in our times we live in, for him to say it is pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began, I would agree. I would agree. Pride is so destructive. So let's talk about it, all right? Now, we're going to look at a parable. Now, again, if you're wondering, again, what a parable is, a parable is a story told to illustrate a truth, right? Jesus' parables were teaching aids. that can be thought of as extended analogies, comparing two things or an idea. Another way to say it is a parable is a fictional yet realistic story that illustrates a spiritual truth. In fact, I would encourage us to grow and develop our ability to tell stories. Jesus told a lot of stories. He shared a lot of parables, and it related to people. I think people remember stories. In fact, what I preached today and what I preached last month, you probably don't remember much. That's okay, I'm not offended. But you remember the stories. Right And so Jesus knew that, because he was there in the beginning when God created humanity, and he's here now, and he knows that we connect to stories. So I just want to encourage you, as a side note, as a Christian as a believer, develop the ability to share stories that relate to people, analogies. right? I've heard this before, I think Billy Graham once was sitting at his desk and one of his people came in and and, and they would talk about how he would take any object and try to share the gospel with the object. Like he would take a pencil and would explain to you how this pencil builds a bridge from you to Christ. He could take a phone he could take an animal, he could look at a chair and explain to you, you have faith in that chair, but you don't know if it's going to hold you, but you have to have faith in God. He would build the bridge, but he would take everyday things to relate to people, because all roads point back to him. Isn't that cool? So I just want to encourage this as like a training guide. Hey man, let's get better at telling stories. Let's be more like Jesus. Let's be good storytellers, Okay. And don't give me any excuses about your personality. I used to stutter in high school. I couldn't get three words out without stuttering. I was introverted. And then God did a miraculous work in my life. And now I can't stop talking. So it can happen to you too. All right, so let's look at it. The Pharisees and the tax collector. Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this here tax collector. I fast twice a week, count them. I give tithes of all that I get, And he pauses. What a great prayer, right? Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other, speaking of the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the words Jesus is about to share as we break this down, remember, this parable is aimed at who? It's at people who trusted in obtaining their own righteousness. They trusted in their own ability, their own works, right? their own good deeds, to obtain righteousness. For a Pharisee, it means that they would follow the law, the ordinance, the traditions passed down, and even the ones they made up so they could become righteous. Now, we want people to be good, right? Like we want good behavior. If you're a parent, you want your kids to behave. You don't want to get that little note from the teacher at school. It's like, oh my gosh, we got one of those recently. And I was like, Ashley, you deal with this. No, just kidding. We both jumped in on it. and I didn't want to deal with it. Was like, oh, I don't want to deal with that, you know? Every parent thinks their kid is perfect, but then they know they're not. We're just fooling ourselves. They're sinful just like us. But we want to help them. We want them to behave well. We want them to have a good heart, right? We don't want to raise our children to be rebellious. We want them to follow the law and the rules, right? We want them to incorporate these good behaviors in school and at home and in front of, uh, you know, in front of the grandparents and everything. But remember, this parable is aimed at people that believe they are doing life the right way, a way that honors God, so that therefore they are then made clean and righteous. So what seems to be the problem? Jesus is taking issue with not only how these people, speaking of the Pharisees, see themselves, but also how they see others. See, it's twofold. It's not just how he sees himself as righteous and clean and better than and holier than everybody else. It's also his judgmental view towards others, in this case, the tax collector. When you trust in yourselves, you're trusting in your own righteousness. Righteousness. And then he's treating the others with contempt. So let's go back to verse 11 and 12. It says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. It sounds pretty good. I mean, if I heard that, I'd be like, man, come on, man, you're hired, life group leader. Let's go. You know what I'm saying? We are doing on the weekend, son? Let's go. Let's, I mean, it sounds pretty good. Like, this guy's a prayer man, prayer warrior, fasting warrior twice a week. I mean, how does he keep the weight on? You know, it's like, wow. I mean, this guy is serious about his faith. And the Pharisees were extremely serious. In fact, let me break down to you what the Pharisees were a little bit. Um, the Pharisees were actually broken down into three main groups or three schools which really based off their main disciple lineage. Okay, so you had the disciples of Shammai, which are more the more conservative Pharisees. Then you had the disciples of Hillel, which are more the liberal interpretation of the Jewish scriptures. And then you had the disciples of Gamaliel. You may have heard his name before. He was a renowned teacher of the law in Jerusalem. And of note, the apostle Paul had been discipled by Gamaliel in that school. So that's where Paul's coming from, is that school from one of the most well-known, well-known teachers in the Pharisee way. And the Pharisees, they had considerable influence over the scribes who would preach in the synagogues according to the Pharisees' interpretations. You see, they would interpret the laws in a very pragmatic way according to the times they lived in. They would take the Torah and take the laws and then maybe make a few adjustments to make things work. For instance... The law of Moses, which they strictly win by, requires all loans to be forgiven in the seventh year. Not just the year of Jubilee, as we talked about earlier this year. But actually, every seventh year, all loans were to be forgiven completely. That's in Deuteronomy 15. And the intention for that, as God set it out, was to provide relief for borrowers. But the reality is that most lenders would not be lending out in like year five or six or seven as it's getting close because they didn't want to have those debts forgiven, right? So, what do they do? The Pharisees introduced a solution to this problem. They said, okay, you can have a contract that would supersede the law of Moses and allow for repayment of debts even into the seventh year. Economically, you're like, hey, that makes sense if you're on the banker's side, right? But the truth is, they are trying to supersede the law of Moses by putting their own spin on it to make sure they keep everything going. Another example, for husbands looking for grounds for divorce, they would interpret the words in Deuteronomy 24 that says some indecency in her, right? Pretty broad. They literally, there are so many cases you can research it where they would interpret that so many different ways, even to the point of including reasons for divorce that were acceptable underneath the law if your wife burnt your dinner, you could divorce her because you know what? That's some indecency in her. The woman can't cook. It sounds ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Jesus, son of God, born in the manger, 30 years old, baptized. We talked about he goes off to the desert, takes on the devil. One, two, three, knockout punch. See you later. Jesus is on the scene. That's what he walks into. You guys are getting divorced for what? Man, she smells. She can't cook. What are you, I mean, can you imagine the outrage? He's like, oh my, what is going on here, you know? What happened? You guys seemingly have taken the law, created your own little society of interpretation that then lords it over everybody else and then claims that you're the righteous holy ones. That was the attitude. That was, it was everything from the garb to how they spoke. You know that, you know that person. You know that person in your life that's just annoying because they walk around with such arrogance. And you almost want to be like, how dare you? Like, oh my goodness. And that's this whole group. And they lorded over everybody. And they kept them here. And what they said was, we're the righteous ones, you're not. Do you see that? It's, it's oppressive religion. That's how they were living. So you can see when Jesus came, he's like, whoa, this is not the way. This is not the way. So Jesus would come and teach in these same synagogues where this stuff was being spoken, and he would go not supersede the law of Moses in that sense. He would actually take the standard of the law of Moses and say, hey, we're going to take it up a notch. Like in Matthew 5.42, he said, do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Speaking directly back at that little twist they had. Concerning divorce, he said, divorce was not God's original plan, and it's not required to divorce your wife, even for Infidelity. Because forgiveness can be applied. You see, Jesus said, hey, here's the law. Just so you know, I came to fulfill the law, and I'm gonna show you the new way, the kingdom way that's filled with the Spirit, that's filled with forgiveness and mercy and love and grace. That way, I'm gonna show you that way how to live. If they've been misleading you, I'm gonna show you the right way. Do you see? That's why he says, the way is narrow and hard that leads to life. The way is broad and easily leads to destruction. He was showing everybody a narrow way that was so different. Yet the focus of the Pharisees was on their own righteous standing before God. That was kind of their main thing. We want to do everything we can to be righteous before God, right? So while many Jews tithed, actually, Pharisees even tithe their garden herbs, right? Like you've seen there's like mint and dill. Anyone ever go any mint? Dill, you try that? You know, like cabbage? It'd be like, okay, there's 10 leaves of cabbage. One leaf for the temple. We eat none. Do you see, like, they had so much attention to detail because they believed, if I don't do that one leaf of cabbage, I'm in big, big, big trouble. They were so convinced of strict adherence and they just kept creating other things. Like, I don't even know, but I'm sure they, on the Sabbath, they may not have even, like, moved or try to limit the amount of breath they took. <gasps> you know what I'm saying? Like, can I only move nine fingers, not all ten? You know, I'm just... It was getting ridiculous. This is Jesus stepping into it. While others fasted periodically, Pharisees fasted twice a week. Most desire to maintain cleanliness at the dinner table. I think most of us today, especially, you know, COVID era, we learn, like, wash your hands. I, I just want to say, why did our country need COVID to learn to wash your hands? I've been washing my hands since I could walk. Not everybody does, I've learned, so I'm thankful for that. But just so you know, as a church, wash your hands. You, there should be no one going to that men's bathroom and not washing your hands. I don't know. I'm not going to heap on a Pharisee sin thing. I'm just saying, between you and God, just be clear. Please wash your hands. This is disgusting. But you know what Pharisees do? They actually would strain out a gnat, a little tiny fly, from a cup because they wanted their dinner to be so clean. Like, they were so meticulous. And especially, they would avoid sharing a table at all costs with any known sinners, including a tax collector. Because he habitually broke the law. And even getting near him makes you filthy. You see, self-righteous people are self-centered people. Another way you can see this is they have a critical spirit. It's pretty easy to see. A self-righteous person, an arrogant, prideful person, what's coupled with that package deal, with that meal deal, I'll say, is a critical spirit. That's what you get. Like, the pride and arrogance actually creates and attracts a critical spirit, so then you start viewing everything through that lens, and that's exactly how the Pharisees operated. It's kind of like, if you've ever been in a relational conflict, maybe you haven't, I've been in a couple, and... Here's how a situation goes down when someone has a critical spirit. They communicate to you, hey, this is how you hurt me. This is what you said. This is how I've been wronged. Whatever. And you say, I'm sorry for that. I don't want to do that again. Thanks for bringing me Bring my attention. How can I make it right? Right? And then you then respond with, hey, I want to let you know this has hurt me and this has happened. And their response is, hmm, and you're like, did you hear what I just said? And they're like, um, yeah, I'm sorry that you took it that way. Ooh. Ever heard that one? Yeah, that's marriage 101 training. Yeah. I'm sorry you felt that way. You know what that is? That's arrogance and pride. That is a critical spirit. That phrase is so pervasive, it's driving me crazy. I'm correcting my children all the time. Dad, I didn't mean to. It doesn't matter. You did. I need you to say, Dad, I did not intend to hurt my sister. But, Dad, I did hurt my sister. Thank you. Take responsibility. A critical spirit will not. That's when you smell it. I'm just letting you know. This is like, you know, uh, 401 stuff. (laughs) In a relationship, When someone is unwilling to take any of the blame, any of the responsibility for whatever, whether it's their tone, their words, their actions, their intentions, it was an accident, if they are unwilling to take any responsibility, you know they're walking around with some measure of pride and arrogance because pride and arrogance said, it's not my fault. Your fault. God's fault. Government's fault. Dad's fault. Her fault. Siblings' fault. That guy driving other car's fault. This fault. The way that I got this body's fault not my fault that is a critical spirit that is a pride of arrogance and that is what Jesus is trying to root out as he's sharing this parable is this self-righteous indignation that says I am better than I am not the one to blame the first way to recover from anything is to admit you have a problem and you need help and it's not that it's all your fault but to live a life and relationships with God and people and they say it's not yours, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. That only radiates yourself, not Christ. What radiates Christ is, man, I'm sorry I did that. And guys, I feel like half my life, I'm apologizing for things I didn't know I did. Yeah. But that's how you go from ignorance to understanding things, that's how you go from immature to mature. Oh, that's what happens in that? Oh, man. I mean, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, we have to be willing to go on the journey and saying, that is spiritual maturity. Willing to take ownership for where we're off. And instead of criticizing everyone else, say, hey, what is my part to play? Even when I get some brutal email or phone call or text from somebody that's got some issue, As much as I like don't, I'm not gonna like study it and memorize it, okay? But I look at that and I'm like, okay, Lord, show me one thing out of this email that I can learn from. It's pretty hateful. But maybe there's something. God, show me something. Because I do not wanna walk around thinking I am perfect or without error. I have mistakes. I have blind spots. Lord, show me. And sometimes someone who's really hurtful can help show a blind spot. Sure, it's not done the nicest way. Could have been nice to maybe sit down with a cup of coffee and hash it out, but it's not how to happen. But Lord, I want to learn anyways. Does it make sense? Be the bigger person. Be the one that's willing to admit your own part to play. And let's move on to verse 13. So, we've kind of captured the Pharisee for a moment. Let's go to verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, who was the tax collector? They collected tolls, tariffs, customs, and were famously dishonest and hated. So, like the worst job ever, essentially. I would like your money. And by the way, I'm going to extort you for more. And by the way, yes, I've been hired by the Roman government who you hate, who's occupying our area and messing up the temple and our religion, everything else, but I work for them. And then if you deny the tax collector, they get to report you to Roman guards and anything else, then you get in big trouble. So it's like, it's the in-between guy that you don't respect, you don't like, and they're robbing you, but they have authority to do it. It just sounds terrible, you know? And that's who this guy was. And Jesus isn't excusing his behavior. In this parable, there's nothing that's saying, task collector, good job, buddy, keep it up. Great line of work. So glad you're extorting people. He's not affirming his role and what he's done. What he's affirming is the place he's come to in brokenness and saying, enough is enough. Forgive me, I want to change. I'm done, God have mercy on me. That is what he is applauding. And you can see it in his posture. He stands far off. He won't even lift his eyes up. He just feels terrible about it. And you know, you know what I mean? It's like with my kids, uh, you know, we're trying to train them how to have a real apology. You know what it's like. It's like, say you're sorry. Sorry. What? Who would you say sorry to? The wall? Hello? It's like, oh, yeah. No, no, this one right here. This sibling, right? This one. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You're going to say, I'm sorry, and say their name. I'm sorry, say their name, and what you did. Now we're getting somewhere. I'm sorry that I did this to you. And, and then when they start getting into the, I'm sorry you took it that way. Whoa, whoa, no, no. No, 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 no. I'm sorry I did this, period. No justification, no excuses. We're really good justifying ourselves, aren't we? I mean, we do all the time. It's like natural. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, I was late to class because, you know. This thing, it's like, I'm really working that personally to like cut the excuses out, because there are no excuses that are affirmed by God in the Bible. That's right. I don't see any. You can't find one. Hey, good excuse. There are none. There are none. But we tend to live that way. This task collector is not making excuses. He's saying, "This is who I am, in my brokenness." I love Psalm. 51, 1 through 4, when he says, God, be merciful to me as a sinner, I came across this passage. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." That's a cry of brokenness, of mercy, of acknowledging who you are and what you've done. And what I love about the tax collector, you know what he does? He acknowledges God. He says, God, have mercy on me. He's not proclaiming to be perfect or right. The Pharisee had a bunch of I statements, if you noticed. God, I pray, I fast, I do this. It's about him. The posture God wants us to have, when we talk about radiating God's glory, it's not pride, it's humility. It's embracing humility, and it's radiating him. It's back to him. It's recognizing his nature. In fact, this task culture even calls out the nature of God and his mercy. And we know the Bible talks about how mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment still exists, but the mercy of God is so there. It is so available to us. I and mean, I think all of us could pause And think about the mercy that God has applied to us in our lives when we actually deserved extreme judgment. I know I have. And I'm like, wow, God, you don't have to do that. That's not what I deserve. I don't deserve your mercy. I don't. And that's the humility we want to carry. God, I'm not deserving your mercy. I haven't done enough good to weigh out my bad. Lord, I'm not because of how I've treated this or that. Lord, I'm just submitted to you in humility, and I just want to follow you and help me, and man, when I miss it, Lord, help me. Verse 14, we're gonna wrap it up here. It says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus sums it up for us. Self-exaltation is opposed. It is... um, It is the opposite of what we're going for. Proverbs 22, four says, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. There is something that God is doing with us, I believe, as a people. I believe we are seeing it kind of diverge. I, I have not seen a church in America. I'm only 39, so I haven't lived that long. But talking to my parents and others, the church in America is getting more black and white than ever before. We lived in a realm of gray for like at least 20 years, maybe more, the church. Like there was a kind of a lot of things we could dabble in and mess around with that kind of looked worldly, but just a little different, right? Like in my generation, we just wore a different t-shirt, but we still went to the same movies. We still talked the same. We still treated each other like jerks, but we wore the right t-shirt or we went to the right church or were part of the right Youth group, that's changing. People right now, they're like, hey, I'm either getting serious about Jesus or I'm ejecting and see you later. Forget it. And I think that's a good thing, that there's a clarity, not the confusion. Does that make sense? I'm not saying it hasn't come with a bunch of pain, you know, but change has pain oftentimes. But man, there's such a clarity coming. And I'm telling you, as the church believers, Jesus is calling us to radiate his glory through the way of humility. Oh man, that we can deal with our own pride and the way that we view ourselves as righteous or better than, whatever that is for you, and the way we see others, to not judge them, to not look at them and to condemn them or hold them in contempt, but actually say, Lord, I want to intercede for my brother or sister that's struggling, not be the critical spirit of them. That's the breakthrough God's looking for. The other other worldliness, like the kingdom way, is actually look at her enemy and intercede that God will break through into his life and they'll experience the love of God. Not that everything will just destroy them. Does it make any sense? Like, that's that's the New Testament way. It It is to pray for and love our enemies as hard as that is, not to hold them in contempt. So here's what I want to say, and I want you guys to stand up this morning. We're going to close with this. <laughs> I just thought it'd be fitting, since this parable is really a prayer, that we would just pray. As we close, as we worship together. And here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to turn to one person next to you. Maybe you just met him, maybe you came with him, I don't know. And I want you to intercede for someone that you know is really struggling you don't have to use your name if you don't want to for confidentiality you know they are but specifically someone that either fits the picture of the tax collector or the pharisee who is someone in your life that man they are religiously just enamored and they're self-righteous and pride you just see it destroying them and they don't see it i either want you to pray for them and pray that god would break through in their world Or if there's a tax collector, who's the person just habitually sinning in their life and they're rebellious and it's off and you want to pray that God would have mercy on them and break through their world. I don't know who it is for you, but I want you to turn to one person and just start praying for them. And you don't be loud, you can't or whatever, but just, but as you pray, I, I want you to, and to be a lot of words, but I want you to pray with faith that God would actually step into their life. Like today. I, I don't know if he will or not, not God, but I want to have the faith that he will. I want to have the faith, today God's the day. Today's the day of reckoning for that person's heart. God, do it today. Do it today, Lord. We're not demanding, we're asking, but we're pleading with him and saying, Lord, come on, Lord, would you do it in their life? All right, so turn to someone right now. I'm going to wrap this up in a minute and we'll go into worship. Just turn to someone right now. Say, hey, I'm going to pray for whoever you can use a different name if you want to. Pray for a Pharisee you know or a tax collector you know. Intercede right now for breakthrough in life. Go for it. Lord Jesus, right now we just pray over every person in this room. You know them by name. Lord, you know the hairs on their head. Lord, we pray for the Pharisees being called out in this room. Lord, we pray for a breakthrough over their life. Lord, that they would surrender to you, Lord. They would admit their wrongs. They would know that there is no righteousness in them apart from you, Jesus. Lord, you'd reach into their world, God. We pray, would you shake them out of the religious way? And you would let them know there's a real relationship with a real father that loves them and there's grace and truth ready and waiting for them and the mercy is present from god to them Lord, we pray for those that are struggling with pride and arrogance lord break them down lord oppose them so they get broken and built back up again in love and brought back in the fold and lord we pray for the task collectors lord that, that we're praying for god we're asking for all those that have gone wayward, for the prodigal sons and daughters, for those that have lived a life of rebelliousness and complete sin. God, we're asking, would you bring them back today? Lord, go get the one and bring them back, we pray in Jesus' name. Get a hold of their hearts, God. Come to them in a dream. Visit visit them in the night, God. We pray, whatever you've gotta do supernaturally, get into their car, into their room. Lord, let one of us bump, bump into them, God. We don't know, but Lord, we're praying for those that are broken and lost and running and hurting and at, and at their wit's end that you would intervene and the gospel would go forth and they would know there is hope and life in the name of Jesus. They can cling on to you. You are real and you are ready and willing to forgive and bless and build them back up, we pray. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Just one last thing, if you're here this morning and uh, you're saying, hey, I need some prayer, I just want to have some of our life, but just come up here real quick. Just make your way up here. And uh, they just want to pray for you. So if you're here and you say, you know, I need prayer for whatever it is. I need to share something in my heart, confess something, I need healing. I need encouragement, whatever. Just come on up here as we worship. Don't hesitate and let these guys pray for you and encourage you this morning, all right? Jesus, we thank you right now. Lord, we bless your name. Lord, take us up into the heavens and our minds and our hearts. Lord, take us up into your glory. Lord, we want to be people that radiate the glory of God, that the goodness of God is on display in us. Lord, let it be far from us that we are attached, collective, let it be far from us that we're a Pharisee. Let us be people who are disciples of Jesus, walking after you, following after you, Lord. But Lord, I pray, help our hearts, wherever we're off, whatever needs to happen, whatever needs to change, whatever needs to be confessed this morning, Lord, we ask for you to come and do it. Prompt our hearts that so we walk clean before you, God. And we're able to sit, underneath your grace and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Just come on up as you need to.